Coming up on this week's show, the GameCube turns 20. How to build your own Sega Saturn Mini. And we chat to games designer veteran Jeff Johenningman. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our wonderful mates at Bitmap Books. Now, you need to check out one of my favourite books that celebrates one of my favourite genres, The Art of Point-and-Click Adventure Games, a sumptuous 500-page hardback coffee table book celebrating the very best games that define that genre. You can check that out on their full range of retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 293, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And nice to see you for our favourite part of the week, just before the weekend when we get to nerd out about all things retro gaming and technology and celebrate the golden age of video games with a very special guest as well. You know, let's realise actually this is our second to last show of September, only six weeks till Halloween now. Which is insane. Yeah. I thought you were going to say something much scarier than about something which is in seven weeks' time. What's coming up in seven weeks' time? I don't it's, know. Ravi might know. It's the 300th episode, guys, isn't oh, it? it? Is. Yeah, We've been doing this. Dan sounds ill-prepared. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's been good, actually, because we've been, we've been getting out there, haven't we? I know Joe went to a, a video game event recently. Yeah, I went to the uh, Birmingham Games Market uh, this weekend, just gone, which was my first kind of gaming, you know, market or whatever you want to call it, gaming expo, you know, in almost two years, which felt it felt really weird being there. It felt really weird being there without you guys as well. It was probably my mm. first one I've gone to without you too. Um, I went with my wife and daughter and, and uh, some family friends, but it was really fun. It was, you know bit of a buy everything Mortal Kombat kind of day, but you've been out and about as well, haven't you, Ravi? Yeah, you see, you can kiss your wife and daughter, but you can't you can't kiss us guys. Well, <laughs> unless we oh, like wow. you. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I, I've been out. Um, I went to Swindon Retro Museum, and that was really cool, and I'm going to be going to a Leicester Retro Museum. I'm doing like a tour of the Retro Museums. Yeah. Uh, they're really good places just to sit and like get involved. And actually, we've got a story today which is uh, related to swindon retro museum as well and uh what what are you kind of planning dan yeah i'm off to a uh, retcon this weekend so if uh, anyone's going there at the uh, greenford community center this is a show that i've wanted to go to for a few years now but normally the date they do it on it kind of falls in um in june mid-june when it's normally my wife's birthday and we're away on holiday so mm. it's um i've not been able to go to it for the last like well, it wasn't on last year, but the, the previous two or three years. So um, they're doing it later this year. So I'm looking forward to that. Again, like you said, it's just, you know, getting back to normality, isn't it? And seeing people that you haven't seen for a couple of years. But, well, things are slowly, slowly starting up. Like um, even my Amiga group now, we've, we're, we're having another meeting as well. And actually, I'm not organising it, which is quite good because I'm going to be able to turn up. And, and just enjoy it myself without thinking. I thought you were going to say you know? turn up blind drunk then. Sort of smashed and wrecked yeah. all the machines. Yeah. Get kicked out. But yeah, but it is nice that things are uh, gradually getting back to normal now and these things are starting to open up again here in the UK. I know things are different all around the world, but you know, slowly, uh, hopefully we're all getting there over the next six months or so. Um, actually, I must admit this week, I've just really been playing um, Life is Strange on the PlayStation 5, which I know is a game that's a bit divisive. You know, some people don't like those kind of games. 
The thing I've been playing most on it, though, is there is a full Arkanoid clone, fully licensed Arkanoid. <laughs> I can't get it with these modern so games, can you? You've done exactly what I said we would do yeah. when we get the next gen consoles. You are literally paying, playing a PS5 to play retro games. <laughs> To play an early 80s arcade game. Yeah, yeah, I was on it the other night. I must have played the actual game for about 20 minutes and then about an hour on Arkanoid. So um, getting my money's worth on the PlayStation 5. I think you'd agree. Now, we've got lots of news stories to get into this week. It's been a very busy week and we have got an amazing guest on the show in around 25 minutes from now. This was one that, because, you know, we do guests all around the world, one with quite a time difference. I think we recorded this around quarter past midnight last week, Ravi. Oh, God, yeah, because uh, we we were recording in Texas and, you know, I thought, are we going to sound absolutely shattered on this? Because uh, we did do a late one, but, you know, it mm. worked out well because it was kind of the heat wave. So I was up anyway, and uh, it was an absolutely amazing interview. It's with Jeff Johannigman, and he's uh, an amazing developer. He's worked within so many companies like Electronic Arts, Atari, Epics, Microprose, uh, Broderbund, Synapse, Dynamics, but um, his main kind of core of work and, and, and what we mainly talk about is Electronic Arts and their kind of influence mm. that they had on all the other companies. You know, you had guys like Will Wright coming from Electronic Arts. You had a lot of Microprose inf- influence with Sid Meier and uh, all the kind of, all the, secrets and the kind of uh behind the scenes stuff comes out because uh jeff was uh integral part and he he would work with all the different designers and uh kind of was friends with all of them yeah and he co-founded the um game developers conference with chris crawford who we had on a couple of months ago as well so you know he's got some incredible stories from that really exciting time in video games you know when you talk about like the early 80s to early 90s i think there's so much innovation and, you know, all the new generations that came along and the new hardware. I mean, we kind of nerd out about sound blasters and uh, MPEG video cards and even going back to stuff like the PC Junior in here as well and the C64 and some really, really interesting stuff. And even like, you know, the PDP, like oh, mini yeah. computers and that kind of thing. There's and, a lot And in like, you know, EA, they were like a foundation company, you know, that they, they kind of started and then loads of people rooted off them. And uh, we even find out, you know, why why EA dropped the Atari ST, which is mm. uh, which is really interesting and juicy. So there's some great stuff in this interview. Really enjoyed doing this. Even though it was late at night, it was definitely worth staying up for. Absolutely. So our special guest, Jeff Johannigman, he's coming up on the show very soon. Before that, as said, lots of news stories to talk about now. On the day we're recording this week's show, actually, um, we're recording this on Tuesday, 14th of September. It is actually 20 years to the day that the GameCube launched in Japan. And I know you, because I, I mean, Ravi and I, obviously we play GameCube. I've got a GameCube now, but I think you're probably the only one of us that actually had a GameCube when it was new on the market back in the day, Joe. Yeah, GameCube was like my console, you know, it was for me, like obviously I had the Mega Drive and the Snares and then we got an N64, but the GameCube was like the first kind of console we got when it was brand new. I mean, we got the PlayStation, but we got a dodgy one. Which my dad got from the pub and only like the player one worked. But yeah, if you want to ga- hear those stories, check out the After Hours podcast. <laughs> but the uh, the GameCube was like my main console from about twelve years old to about eighteen years old. I didn't get a PS2 and an Xbox, you know, until I was an adult, you know, much later on, kind of thing. Obviously, I played them at friends' houses, but yeah, I I adored my GameCube. I was always a little bit jealous that obviously it wasn't a multimedia player. I always thought that was really strange that Nintendo 
did the mini discs, you know, the, their own little discs and they didn't play mm. DVD and CD, you know, which is probably why the GameCube didn't do as well as the PS2 and the Xbox amongst other things. But yeah, I 20 years, like that's just making me feel so old because I was like 12 years old. When we got, did when did we you got walk around with the little handle and kind of like wear it like a bag? No, <laughs> no, I, ne- now, I, I never did use the little handle, but I did always think it was really odd. And my brother used to always think it was really odd. And he'd come and take the mick out of my GameCube all the time. Like, you want to go to PlayStation 2? Because he'd moved out by this point and he had a PlayStation 2. And he's like, oh, it's a baby's toy. It's a baby's game. So I was really smug when Resident Evil 4 came out as an exclusive. <laughs> I was like, baby's game, we've got Resident Evil 4, mate. And he was blown away by that. But... um. Interesting fact about the GameCube, which I only found out today, and it's one of those things that I probably knew but never really thought about, the first Nintendo console to not be released with a new Mario game. Mm. Oh, it didn't wow, come yeah. out with a Mario. It, this Mario Sunshine came out on it, but that was later on. Yeah. Um, there was no no launch Mario title, which is crazy when you think about it. And you, yeah, know, so you think of the N64 and like that was all about Mario 64, mm. the entire launch and the design of the system. And, you know, that was the big flagship game that was the, the main system seller, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But, and, you know, I think I think the GameCube is quite underrated, you know, and it, I think it still has a legacy to this day with the Switch, like, and with the Wii U, how you could still plug the GameCube controllers in and people still spl- play like modern Smash Bros with the GameCube controller. Like, I think it's a really iconic how do I? It's just like an underrated console, I think, you know, because it didn't actually sell too well, did it? No, it actually, considering, you know, what we consider a failure, for mm. example, the Wii U that I think sold around 18 million, didn't it? Mm. Um, and everyone calls the Wii U a gigantic flop. The GameCube worldwide, 21 million. Yeah. So only a couple more than the than the Wii U, actually. So it wasn't a success compared to, like, you know, the PS2 that sold, like, 100 million more than that. Yeah, yeah, I think the PS2 was, like, 220 million, something insane, and then the Wii was, like, 150 million, something like that. So, yeah, like you say, it was, it was I guess, in some ways, a bit of a flop, but, you know, I think a lot of people have a lot of love for the GameCube and a lot of nostalgia for it. I, th- I think it had, like, it was weird. It had, like, a, a kind of Dreamcast like fun to it with um some of the controllers that you could get and some of the add-ons um mm. what was that the donkey conga was oh one, yeah, yeah 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 and did, did they have maracas as well or something i know that there was a lot of yeah weird think, controllers uh, a yeah. fishing one as well a fishing rod yeah one. yeah there was when you said that when i was like what's he on about and i was like yeah you know what there is there's the microphone as well um, yeah so you know, it's, it's quite a few actually now you come to think of it yeah I know you mentioned the Dreamcast there, and I think that is another thing that the GameCube is remembered for as well. Obviously, when the Dreamcast got discontinued, the fact that we had you know a Sonic game mm-hmm. on a Nintendo system for the first mm-hmm. time when Sonic Adventure came out on the on the GameCube, that was a bit of a you know for, for Sega fans. I remember that, a lot of them being like, what? "That was very kind of controversial." On the you know, I mean, I was in secondary school by then, but I'll, I'll still call it the playground. But you know, mm-hmm. that went around school that Sonic was on the GameCube and, you know, it was like Nintendo have bought Sonic. Like that was just like, obviously that wasn't the case. It was just Sega were publishing games on, you know, other consoles now. But like at the time it was so controversial, you know, it was like, oh my God, like, you know, Sonic Adventure 2 came out on it and then Sonic Heroes and that was it. It was just like all of a sudden in my mind and in my friend's mind, Sonic was Nintendo. Like it was crazy. Mm. And, and you know, it's hard to follow up the N64 as well because the N64 yeah. was such a change in kind of, um, 
you know, in graphics, in in in, in gameplay style, and everything, and anything would have struggled like to to follow the N sixty four. I think because that that was so like out there, you know, at the time when it came out. And also, I reckon that you know what you mentioned then about the fact that it was purely a gaming system. Uh, in many ways, you know, the Switch is kind of like that today, isn't it? It's a system that, you know, all the other consoles, obviously the PS2 back then, it was really going big on the fact that it had DVD. Um, and the Xbox, you know, that had like the the multi the home media stuff on there. And they were kind of majoring on that in a lot of the marketing for those systems. But again, it was, uh, even though Sony used a tagline for the players, really Nintendo has been more about that, I think, you know, since that generation in particular. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to mention, there was the Panasonic Q version of the GameCube which yeah, did yeah. come out a little bit later, that did play DVDs and CDs and stuff. But if I remember rightly, they were incredibly expensive, even compared to like a PS2 or an Xbox. So mm. I don't think anybody had them. <laughs> and that controller is quite divisive. I see a lot of hate for it online, but I actually really like the GameCube controller. Interesting you'd say that. I mainly see people hyping the GameCube controller, saying it's one of the best controllers ever in gaming, to be honest. I see that quite quite a lot. I mean, mm. I could, you know could be wrong each to their own but like i say it comes back to smash bros players you know these competitive players who still use the gamecube controller with all the different um ports and cables and peripherals to make it work um you know i, I really like the feel of the gamecube controller personally the only thing i don't like about mine is um <laughs> you know the analog stick that kind of yellow rubbery yeah, thing mine's kind of it's got all sticky nice. over uh, the last 20 years. Now that I, I think that it one. was like, you know, the N64 controller was like a three-pronged thing and they basically yeah. ri- ripped the middle prong out, which which always confused people how to hold it or, you know, use it as a gun or whatever. Uh, they ripped that out and kind of redefined it with a GameCube and, and they did make a nice controller, yeah. And those, even those wireless ones, that was really early on, the, wasn't it? The Wavebirds. The Wavebirds, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's innovative, man. It really was, and I think, you know, at the time, I mean, we, we talked about this in the, the After Hours podcast, if you check out our 2001 episode for the patrons-only podcast that we do. The fact that at the time, I mean, that was kind of my gaming wilderness years, but I did kind of keep an eye on stuff, and I always regarded the GameCube as being like a, a console for little kids, probably because of the way that it looked and that kind of, you know, the Fisher-Price and, and kind see, of appearance and the handle. My brother's a similar age to you, and he was, yeah. so, he was so the same. It's a baby's toy. It's a baby's console. Why have you got that? You're 12 now. He was, you know, he used to give me so much stick for it. But I think, you know, in terms of graphical power, it was, you know, I, th- I think it was actually the most powerful of that generation, wasn't it? So it was, really yeah. was a, a a wolf in sheep's clothing and a system that, you know, I, I agree. I think it was very underrated. So um, to celebrate the uh, the GameCube's 20th birthday, I'm thinking this weekend, you know, when I get back from Retcon, might get my, uh, my, my GameCube out and uh, have a little blast at a couple of classic games as well. Because, you know, it is a system that I think deserves a bit more love. So happy birthday to the GameCube. 20 years old this week. Now, this is something I didn't think I'd see. Um, A franchise that really has been a bit neglected over the last decade, and this is Driver. Now, of course, this was what many people considered the the main rival to Grand Theft Auto back in the day. Turns out we're getting a, a TV series of Driver. Yeah, so this was announced this week that we're getting a TV series of Driver for the video gaming service, TV service, called binge which was announced this year which is coming out next binge. year i've never heard yeah peacock we had last time i hadn't heard of that yeah, yeah. so it's a gaming themed streaming service called binge that's all i know about it and apparently the tv show is going to be on on that it's going to be an exclusive so you know how like netflix made stranger things and 
you know, Amazon have got a load of shows they've made and stuff like that. This is going to be binges, driver. But like you say, bit of a dead series. You know, I don't think there's been a driver game in about 10 years, has there? There hasn't. Yeah, 3DS was the last one in uh, 2011, apparently. There you go. I was right, 10 years. And, you know, don't get me wrong, driver was big on the PlayStation. You know, I remember it being really big. But I just, I feel like that genre has been done so much, you know, like Fast and Furious and stuff like that. And, you know, interesting that they've bought the rights to this for the, you know, the TV show to come out. But apparently there's been rumours of a driving TV show all the way back from 2002. So this has been going on for 19 years, but apparently now they've binge have bought it and they are going ahead with it, apparently. Well, it's kind of, it's it's got that, like, it was, when it came out, it was bloody stylish. Like, Mm. you know, it had that 70s cop stuff and, GTA tried to do a few things like, you know, driving through like boxes and stuff like that and kind of had that in the initial GTA 3. But Driver had that kind of 70s vibe, that slickness. Mm. Like the soundtrack was absolutely amazing. Um, Alistair Brimble did that and actually he's done a Driver 20th anniversary and the, the soundtrack was really good. And also in this article, they mentioned that there was a director film mode as well, which I totally forgot about. Um, where you could make your own little driver movies. And I do actually remember sitting there making like, you know, little movies. And My brother used to make them just flying through the boxes, like you said. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> flying through the boxes and but also doing it from different camera angles. But yeah. those real like 70s cot ones. So I can imagine like a, a kind of Starsky and Hutch yeah. style uh, TV yeah, maybe, show maybe. Now, now you've kind of like put that out there, you know, I can see it being different from like have you seen baby driver like you've seen baby have, driver yeah, yeah 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 maybe yeah. maybe like that as well kind of yeah that's quite a stylistic yeah. film isn't it so yeah maybe they'll go with that kind of vibe but like i say it's just a i don't know odd choice i think they could have done something like that without the driver license <laughs> you know i'm wondering though because obviously grand theft auto is so big mm. these days even though i've been seeing all the backlash this week about the um the version that they're releasing for the ps5 and xbox s which is virtually identical to the ps4 and xbox one version trying to get gta 6 <laughs> well that's the thing. they're trying to get the people to buy the same game three times on three different generations in under a decade but the fact that it is you know the biggest selling entertainment title ever maybe ubisoft are looking at that and thinking it's time for a driver resurrection you know like maybe a full new game which i think will probably do quite well yeah maybe uh, maybe they'll tie it in with the tv mm. show we'll see we'll see but yeah we're not we're, this isn't scheduled until 2022 anyway um which you know feels quite a way away but it'll come, it's only from three months time <laughs> yeah. next we'll get the true crime game true crime oh, streets of LA. <laughs> the, the, the tv show of true yeah. crime <laughs> So we'll keep an eye on that and then we'll link up what we know so far in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And you mentioned only a few months left of this year, maybe you're starting to think of uh, Christmas present ideas. Uh, this one that's going to be out next month, Super Mario 64 Lego. Now, when um, when this got announced, literally just after we recorded last week's show, I sent it over on our um, little Facebook chat group that we have. Joe was like, oh my God. Uh, then we looked at the price. 160 pounds <laughs> yeah yeah ravi needs to get saving to buy us both one of these for christmas but um That's yeah this, <laughs> this looks really cool this is the super mario 64 question mark block lego set um which i can only describe as you know it's the yellow question mark box from mario 64 you know from the iconic box from all the different mario games 
Um, but <laughs> it feels very similar. Like, obviously, it's a Lego set and it's really cool. But the way it, I don't know if you guys have watched the trailer, but the way it comes apart really reminds me of those old 90s like Polly Pocket and Mighty Max toys. Yeah, so I was about to exactly <laughs> say that. And the size of it, it it's yeah. really kind of small, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I do feel it's quite expensive at 160 quid, $170 in America, because it's only seven inches tall and seven inches wide. But yeah, you take the top off, which does look really cool, like the mechanics to it. And as you take it apart, the Mario 64 worlds come out of it. Um, and you get three worlds in there, which are Peach's Castle, Babon Battlefield, and Cool Cool Mountain, um, which are essentially the first three levels of the game. And they look really cool, like little miniature Lego sets on there. And you get like 10 little miniature Mario characters. You get like Mario, Yoshi, Peach, um, King Babon, the Chain Chomp. You get the little, you get like Lakitu, and you get the penguins as well from Mario 64, which I really love. It does look really, really interesting. And I do love that they've, use the retro you know super mario 64 because there's loads of mario lego out now and i feel like this is the first time we've seen like the proper retro stuff other than the nes um obviously the nes lego set so it's pretty cool that they're showing some love to mario 64 but it does just feel a bit expensive but then lego is really expensive i think like this concept of having like you know a cube and and levels coming out of it and stuff associated Mm -hmm. with a game maybe you could do a, a like crash bandicoot or, or yeah. you could have like a barrel for doom yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, you know every, everything inside that and uh maybe they can expand it but i'm gonna wait for the Poundland blocco version to come out <laughs> and get you that for christmas oh yeah I'd, I'd be happy with that as well to be fair um but you know I've, it looks really cool and um lego have reported that apparently the uh you know the deal they've done with nintendo the the mario lego has been selling really really well they've done really really well off the back of it so this definitely isn't the end of the nintendo lego sets it is the kind of game franchise that lends itself well to that i think you know the, the similar kind of audiences i imagine are into lego yeah. and mario games especially with stuff like um mario maker which is yeah. essentially just you know a virtual lego builder really yeah, isn't yeah, it on, yeah. on the switch um, and yeah, like you said, a bit pricey, but I'm actually looking at this again. I mean, when I first saw the headline, all the, the lands and stuff in there, I didn't know if they were separate, um, but they actually they do come with the cube as well. So yeah. you do get quite a lot for it. I mean, and, you know, paying 160 quid for Lego, it's a bit ridiculous. But um, as a collector's item, you know, if you're a big fan of Mario 64, I think, you know, that there probably will be quite a lot of people that are prepared to pay that for it. You know, yeah, I'm all for Lego, like... Because kids these days are always on screens constantly. And I think it's a, a good kind of escape just to sit there and build mm. it. Even if you are doing something that's themed on like a video game or something you would play on the screen, it's like just a different way of kind of enjoying it. Now, this is quite an interesting story. Some um, early Spectrum games from a long forgotten developer have now been rediscovered. Yeah. So this story is about a developer called Roger Diamond. And uh, it's actually comes from the uh, Retro Museum of Computing in Swindon and the Digital Orphanage, uh, a.k.a. Keith. And he's kind of been looking at this developer and uh, finding more information about him. He's a bit, bit of a lost developer, you know. Um, there's not much info of him online or anything. And um, he he did some titles, and they were, they were originally Z80 versions, but they seem to have found the Spectrum versions and kind of done them up. Uh, the first one's like a roulette game and uh you know the family actually contacted 
the, the museum and they drove and gave the original tape. And uh, it's been 16 years uh, since they were able to, uh, since they first visited the museum. And then Keith's managed to get back in touch with the parents and inquire about this software. So they had it for a while and they didn't really know what it was and how significant it was until they found out about his story. Well, it's a guy called Roger Diamond, isn't it? And he passed away in 1999, so you're quite a while ago now. Yeah, and it was like a family-run kind of mail-order business. Like back in the days, you know, you had all these people selling from the back of magazines and stuff. But um, he, he did a series of games. The first one was like a roulette game. The second was a, a games compilation, which is, you know, updated versions of these games for the Spectrum. And then... Um, a gambling one as well, tape, because they're always in tapes. And then finally, he did an arcade one called Diamondoids as well, which uh, is, is kind of like a Space Invaders clone for the Spectrum. And it, it looks really good fun. And, um, you know, the, the kind of question is like, what what he could have developed in the future? What, what other stuff have they missed? And, uh, you know, it's good to have a tribute to one of these old developers after years of uh, people not knowing much information about him. Especially back then. I mean, you think early 80s, a lot of people were making software. Because, you know, the, the home programming scene, the bedroom programming scene was very big back then. But before we were all connected online, the amount of people that must have made really good things in their bedroom and then just never put them out to the world. And, you know, the fact that they're now finally getting discovered and people can actually see them, I think that's pretty special. Yeah, and and like it's an interesting story about how he kind of had to rescue the tapes and, you know, uh, restore them essentially, take them out of their casing and get them to be read again. And, you know, uh, he had one of the only master tapes like available and uh, now it's archived online so everyone can kind of enjoy it. So I think that's really good work. And, uh, you know, I went there recently and I hadn't been to the Swindon Museum for about two years um, mm. with COVID and everything and I came back and it just uh, it just felt great just to go in there and I kind of went in a bit slyly as well I put my mask on no one recognized me I didn't tell anyone that I was coming and I sat in the corner and I just kind of listened to guys arguing about operating systems and I was like ah that's nice <laughs> it was kind of like soaked in the flavor while I was playing Mortal Kombat I oh, they did put it on our Twitter, actually. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> they knew. <laughs> I thought I thought I was being stealth, but yeah, it was it was just a really good thing and a really good place. And you know, they're really into their specy, so this is really important and interesting to see. Yeah, I think it proves as well how reliable tape as a format for archival actually is. Um, She's saying you know, that these are like forty-year-old tapes and still readable. Um, and actually, I, I've been watching a YouTube channel. There's a guy called a Dune Basher. Um, and he's got some really good high quality recordings of like, you know, TV AM and it'll be all right on the night from like the late eighties and stuff. And they actually look amazing quality. Like they could be on TV today. Um, and the other day I was actually, um, so we've got a family event coming up in a few weeks and my auntie gave me her wedding video from 1989. And I've ripped that onto, um, an MP4 file for her. You know, it still looks as good as the day she recorded it. I, even though obviously it wasn't high definition format and things, but I think it does kind of feel like tape as a medium, the magnetic media formats tend to survive a bit better than like, you know, something like um, a CD-ROM, which, you know, tends to rot after a decade or so. So, Well, it's, I think it's, it's it also audio, so you, you can capture yeah. it and you can clean it up and you can um, process it through the computer as well, which really helps and do all this stuff that you couldn't to actually, you know, extract a clean kind of signal out of there. 
You know what I've got here? Listen, this is actually a cassette tape uh, from 1988 when I was a kid. Me and my mum, um, we made a fruit machine simulator for the uh, the Commodore Plus 4. So I've got it. I haven't actually tried it yet. I found it the other week, so I'm going to actually give that a try. You need to release so, it. Uh, Retro Hawasaw. Yeah. That would be <laughs> <laughs> so if the Swindon Air Museum want to put my, uh, my fruit machine simulator with my mum in there. I'll send you the tape, although uh, no one probably wants to play that. I don't think it actually worked in the end. We'll, we'll give it a try anyway. So, yeah, very cool, though. Uh, so if you do want to check that out, that story, um, and read more about the um, the Swindon Computer Museum, it's on Hackaday. I'll link that up in our show notes as well. Now, before we get into our chat with this week's special guest, Jeff Johannigman, he's coming up in just a moment. Um, this is a really cool story. I mean, we all we, we talk about the mini consoles all the time, of course. The internet's been going crazy over the Amiga Mini recently, and I think that's going to be a... Uh, Joe's gateway drug into the world of the Amiga when he gets his hand on one of those soon. But there are other systems that we're fans of that maybe weren't all that commercially successful or maybe haven't really got a chance of ever getting a mini version of them. And I think the Sega Saturn is one. I know all of us guys have got Sega Saturns. We're all fans of the system. In particular, Joe, I mean, you're probably the only collector that I know for the Saturn. And you've got quite a big library of games, particularly the Japanese ones and stuff, haven't you? Yeah, well, you say it... This is the funny thing when you say, oh, he's got a, a big collection. I've got about 40 Sega Saturn games, which is pretty expensive <laughs> for the Saturn. Bigger than anyone else, I yeah, know. Yeah, bigger than anybody else I know as well. Um, but yeah, this this is interesting. We've been begging for a Sega Saturn Mini, and now you say it's probably not going to happen. But it is a way to make your own Sega Saturn Mini, it would appear. Um, so I wasn't aware of this, but Bandai, you know, like the toy and game company in Japan... Mm released essentially a Sega Saturn model kit, from what I understand. Yeah. And now what's become available is a Raspberry Pi CM4 Sega Saturn board. So essentially you can put this this Raspberry Pi board in the Sega Saturn mini model kit and make your own mini Sega Saturn, which just sounds insane. Because this does look like, and I hadn't heard of this as well, because I think we probably would have covered it if we had. Um, yeah, only on Salon Japan. You can actually get it off the um, Japanese Amazon store. Mm. I was looking at it before the show. And it is, yeah, it's a mini Sega Saturn. And I looked at it first of all, and it had what appeared to be a circuit board in there. Yeah. So I was like, oh, is it, wor- is it a workable machine? But you look at it, and it's actually just a, a piece of card by the looks of it that's got a, like a circuit board printed on it yeah. so it's not it's not actually working but yeah what this guy's done and this is really cool we'll link up the full video as well if you want to check it out um retro game restore this is from um now they've actually taken apart one of these um little models and put in a working circuit board with a raspberry pi mm. on there that means you can actually play sega Saturn and anything else the raspberry pi could be like i imagine on something that looks like a mini Sega Saturn. Yeah, and it fits exactly inside it and it's everything's perfect, laid out yeah. laid out for mm. it. So um it it looks absolutely mental. Like um the fact that you know you've got the control ports at the front and they're they're micro USB and it and it just it's like it's designed exactly for this. It's it's like it's factory made and you kind of um, plop the Raspberry Pi into the top of the board. Mm. And, you know, you can run RetroPie and then run emulators in there as well. But there seems to be some extra connectors in there. And, uh, you know, it, it looks like, I don't, I don't know, is the CD-ROM working in it? I know there's a picture of the CD there. <laughs> don't. Yeah, that's, only, that's only one from the pack, I that's, think. They, just, uh, when you get the model <laughs> kit. The actual console, yeah. if, you, if you look, the actual console itself is only about the size of a Sega Saturn controller. 
Um, yeah, it's tiny. It's tiny, but yeah, the, the he does have a fully functioning RGBS cable, which is what the Saturn had working on there. So you can plug it straight into a CRT TV as well, wow. which is really cool. Yeah, and also it's got different versions, right? So one's got like built-in Ethernet as well. Well, there's a video by um, ETA Prime, um, fantastic YouTube video, and I'll put that in our show notes as well. And it looks like there is going to be like some more add-on boards coming out for it too. Um, and you get stuff in here, like obviously you've got your micro SD card slot. There's um 3.5 millimeter audio jack as well. Um, even a port in there to connect a mini fan to it, which, uh, you know, because sometimes the Raspberry Pis, they do get warmer than you expect. I generally, you know, if, if you're going to overclock them in particular, which um, I imagine the, I've never tried satin emulation on a Raspberry Pi before, but I imagine it's probably a bit more demanding than, you know, doing something like the Super Nintendo, for example. So it's a good idea to probably have a bit of additional cooling in here as well. But it looks like this is pretty much, you know, drop the Raspberry Pi onto this um, custom board, pop the case open of this um, mini model kit and close it up. And then you've got this this working Sega Saturn Mini. So it, it looks pretty straightforward. It doesn't doesn't look like it requires soldering. And because uh, normally these are, you know, we think these projects are kind of cool, but they're all way too complicated for our skills, aren't they? You know, the mad thing is as well, it's got like, you know, the little slot at the very back that you use for putting in the VCD uh, drive yeah that's yeah. actually the hdmi output as well so <laughs> you, yeah. you can just take the little flap off and it, it you're right it seems to work absolutely perfectly and you know there's a few of these things out there isn't there there's like the 32x um that stack system as well that was made uh, oh the models yeah, yeah yeah and maybe maybe people can get other systems that have their own little model kits and uh start putting boards in them. I think it's a really smart idea. If you've got the case and enclosure, you might as well use it and turn it into something. <laughs> and like you said, Joe, you know, the fact that Sega are probably never going to make a Sega Saturn Mini. And, you know, what's he all saying? If you want something doing properly, do it yourself. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> These kits are out there now, so very cool. Now, can we just take a quick moment to give a big thank you to a really good supporter of the Retro Hour podcast, and this is our wonderful friends at ExpressVPN. Now, ExpressVPN makes you get more value from the services that you're already paying for, because you know what it seems like, you know, when you're doing streaming services, you know, Amazon Prime and Netflix, it seems like the prices go up all the time. And I don't know about you, but I generally, I watch a bunch of shows and then I'm struggling for something to find on there. Totally. Like I, I've started actually going back and looking at older seasons of stuff, you know, rewatching what I'd watched before because I'm running out of content. But uh, <laughs> with ExpressVPN, I'm actually able to watch stuff in HD from other countries. And um, I've been watching. Yeah, this is one that you really like, Dan Holt and Catch Fire. That is an incredible show, isn't it? Um, which is now on the American Netflix. Uh, and obviously, if you love our show, it's kind of a... Um, a dramatization of the early computer industry. Um, you know, these, it's kind of based on the story of Compaq. It is a really good show about, you know, the earliest days of the PC industry and then moves into like the early internet era as well. So, um, you know, if you love shows like Silicon Valley, that kind of thing, Halt and Catch Fire is incredible. Oh, yeah. And you can watch it on the American Netflix now. And uh, Stargate SG-1, of course, and on the Australia one. I've been getting a bit of comedy 
with Philip Banks and Carlton Banks uh, with the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. You know, <laughs> I love the Fresh Prince. <laughs> that is one of those shows I can just watch over and over again, never get bored of watching. So the many Fresh episodes Prince. of it. <laughs> well, this is what you can do with ExpressVPN. So it lets you change your online location so sites think you're located in different countries because there is almost 100 different Netflix libraries around the world. So you can just change your country and tap into all of these programs and shows that you don't normally have access to and it works with other services too like hulu bbc iplayer youtube often has region lock videos you can unlock those as well and as you mentioned then i mean streaming in hd is no problem there's no lag or anything is there no not at all and it's like really easy i have it on my pc so when i start on my pc it starts up express and it's like so fast that i i forget that it's actually on quite a few times and um you know you can have it on all your devices as well so like phones laptops uh, media consoles have it even on your smart tv so it's a really wicked service recommend it you know it's it's one that we use on this podcast So if you're looking for a VPN service and it opens up so much more to you, use the VPN that we trust and use, ExpressVPN. And actually, we've got you an amazing offer. You can get three extra months of ExpressVPN on a one-year plan for free. All you have to do is use our link, expressvpn.com slash retro. And of course, support our sponsors and keep the podcast going. Thanks to ExpressVPN, expressvpn.com slash retro. Now, it is our favourite weekend of the month when we all get together on Sunday evening. We're going to hang out with our patrons. I always look forward to this because um, I don't know about you guys, but whenever we get together, I always kind of think like, you know, what am I going to talk about this month or what am I going to show off? I've actually been messing around with, um, <laughs> it sounds really nerdy, but um, uh, an operating system called Arca OS, which is kind of like a modern version of OS 2 that was um, an operating system that IBM and Microsoft did a collaboration on in the late 80s, early 90s. Kind of failed, but there is a new version of it, and I've been doing a YouTube video on it. So it's going to be interesting to chat to some of the guys about kind of um, what they know about OS2 and that kind of stuff, and also showing off, I imagine, Joe's going to have his Mortal Kombat collection that he, he bought last I weekend. Will be, I will Actually, you, bought, <laughs> you, you bought Mortal Kombat on the Amiga, even though you haven't got an Amiga last weekend. Shh. I gateway did. drug i did i did i did i was i was on buy everything mortal Kombat, and i was with my friend jason who's got eyes like a hawk and i kid you not he was just spotting mortal Kombat everywhere and within half an hour of being there i was like mate I, like i've bought everything like what are you doing to me but, but yes, you officially I, have one of the worst versions <laughs> not according to the box <laughs> it's one of the best i didn't versions. mind the amiga version it, it was better than the street fighter 2 version on the amiga Mortal Kombat. there we go there we go i'll have to get an amiga now load disc for fatality swap disc <laughs> yeah, for fatality. It, it, there was a bit of that admittedly admittedly <laughs> but this is what we do once a month on a sunday night for uh, a couple of hours we all just hang out we all get on google meets our um our patrons come on there there's a bunch of us on there we, we just nerd out about stuff like that i was um trying to find something in my, my cupboard the other day and i found an older toshiba mini disc player and I remembered our conversation on there last month about mini discs, and thought oh, I have to show that to the lads this weekend. Oh, I, so. Yeah, I've just got a PlayStation, so uh, that yeah. leads nicely into what we're about to talk about. Yeah, so there's um, obviously you know already some stuff that we're planning on talking about on Sunday night. And if you want to come along and join us as well, it's a bit like a virtual users group. We just all, all hang out and you know reminisce about nostalgia and there's a lot of movie chat and stuff as well we'd love to see you there so that's going to be happening this sunday night from 8 p.m uk time all patrons are welcome and actually for supporting the retro hour podcast there are other tiers that you can get as well you know if you're a gold member or above you get access to our patrons exclusive podcast the retro hour after hours now uh 
Ravi's commitment. He actually went out and bought a PlayStation I'm, just to I'm record the next episode. This episode. And you know, the funny thing, Dan was like, oh, it might be chipped. And I was like, well, oh, let's just burn a game and put it in. And it is. So no, I'm going to play everything. Of course, I own the originals, but I'm going to play everything we're going to talk about on the show. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about our PlayStation memories because that was such an impacting console. It, like, it changed everything the PlayStation did. Mm. Yeah, we've already done um, Super Nintendo. We've done Mega Drive. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a PlayStation. Now it's PlayStation's turn. I felt like we yeah. missed a trick. We should have done GameCube. <laughs> now we know it's a 20th uh, anniversary. Next, next time. Then, but yeah, oh, yeah. That's yeah, Dreamcast and 64. Maybe once I've played the Amiga, we'll do the Amiga. <laughs> oh, that would be, be a good one. That would be a good one. So this is um, a patrons-exclusive podcast we do. We do one of these a month ish you know sometimes we might might get a couple in in a month and there are now this will be our 16th episode of that so if you back us on patreon you get access to all the um the back episodes as well you can check out the entire catalog of them and we kind of alternate you know we do um system deep dives so we'll do like an hour hour and a half up to two hours sometimes just talking about our memories of a system and um, talking about the launch games that came out and a lot of news clips and stuff from the time too really going in depth onto the systems uh, and then the alternate episodes are looking at retro years so we've done 1999 2000 2001 2000 2002. So we kind of, you know, again, just going in depth into everything we remember from that year and the new launches and everything. So if you want to get access to that, if you back us on Patreon as a gold member or above, you can uh, get access to that. And we're recording a new one uh, this week, actually. So a new one will land on there. Everyone gets invited to the uh, patrons hangouts. And also everyone gets the um, the normal podcast ad free and you get it early most weeks as well. But really, the main reason for backing us on Patreon is to support this podcast because we can't emphasize enough how it just keeps us going, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. Like I, I remember, you know, for years we did this podcast without any kind of support and it was all coming out of our own pocket and it was a bit stressful. Yeah. And, you know, just having you guys kind of supporting it and like supporting the fact that we have an interview every single week and hunt down these amazing guests and, you know, kind of bring it to you. And uh, even though it ha- has advertising, it's kind of free for everyone. So e- even with the with the patron, you kind of, supporting that model where it goes out you know worldwide on all the podcast networks and everyone can hear these great interviews and content as well so we really appreciate it and especially during this covid kind of period you've helped keep this show alive yeah because i mean about you know 18 months ago when we used to record this in a radio studio that i work in during the day and then suddenly ravi and joe couldn't come in and we had to fork out i think we paid about five thousand pounds for all the equipment didn't we to set up our home studios yeah something that we couldn't have done without our patrons you know the show would have stopped 18 months ago so it is really thanks to you guys we hugely appreciate your support and all the money we get off patreon we put it into a big pot and it pays for anything that we need all our hosting costs everything so it's all covered and we don't have to fork out of our own pockets to keep the show going really so thank you so much for your support and of course for backing us on patreon you will get a mention in the world's most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming the retro hour hall of fame and a big thank you to our latest supporters thank you to hide 209 VGM Remixer Retro or Die Robert E. James Bestie and Chris Snowden 
who all backed us on Patreon. We hugely appreciate your support. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find it at theretrohour.com. Right, if you're off to Retcon this weekend, I will see you there. Um, if not, patrons hang out on Sunday night. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see you for that too. Um, all the details to back us on that you'll find on our website. If you um, listen on any podcast clients as well, a little reminder, we haven't had any new reviews for a while, I think, so they always really help. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, for example, or any other platform that allows you to do reviews, you know, if you can't back us on Patreon, we understand not everyone can, but if you can take two minutes just to write a little nice review and give us a few stars on there, that helps get the show in the charts as well. And of course, um, gets us closer to our ambition of finally top billing Gardener's Question Time on the, uh, the Apple Monty Podcast Don, chart. we're coming for you. <laughs> so, yeah, please do that. That will be hugely appreciated. And next then, we are going to be joined by veteran video game designer, Jeff Johannigman. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for our favourite part of the show, where we welcome on our special guest. Now, this week we've got someone who's uh, just been involved in so many incredible companies, and also co-founding stuff like the Game Developers Conference, a programmer designer, um, worked at Origin Systems, EA, Atari, Epic, so many companies. Let's welcome him onto the show. Hello, Jeff. How are you doing? Doing very well. How are you? Very good, thank you. Now, I really appreciate you joining us. And before we kind of get into these um, you know, incredible companies and games that you've worked on, we always like to find out a bit about your kind of geek credentials, you know, where it all started. Do you remember what initially got you into games and where did it all start for you? Sure. Actually, uh, back when I was in high school and I was a geek back then before being a geek was cool, but I, I was still watching the uh, daily reruns of classic Star Trek episodes. So I got to the point where I could name that episode within 20 seconds of tuning in at any point in time. So I was I was kind of a hardcore geek back then. And in high school, our high school had access to uh, connection to the local university's uh, PDP-11 mini computer. And uh, so... Nice. So that was uh, I, like a mainframe, and you, and you was, kind of had was, access yeah, to it. Was, you know, calling it a mini computer now, it would just you know, it, it was still refrigerators worth of computing <laughs> power, but uh, not quite as big as some of the big IBM mainframes and all. And uh, I had a friend who had been writing some programs in BASIC, and he lent me a copy of one of the listings in BASIC, and I took it home and I started reading through it and went, oh, so this is what programming is, and the next day, I started writing a, a Star Trek game in BASIC for the PDP-11 when I was were about 16. Were you playing any other kind of PDP-11 like titles? I know Colossal Caves was a, a, a one that was really important. Oh, yeah. We, we had the Colossal Caves. There was the, the classic Star Trek grid game. There was a Hunt the Wumpus. All of those kind of classic early, early BASIC games that uh, you know eventually... You could get uh, an issue of Creative Computing Magazine and type in the basic code and play it on whichever computer you had access to. And what was your first personal computer then that you had? So back when I was in college, I saved up to get one of the early personal computers, and I was debating uh, shopping around between, at the time, you had the Apple II, the TRS-80, the Commodore VIC-20, and the Atari 400 and 800 computers. Mm. And I could have probably bought any of the first three and had a fine time 
programming, but when I saw the game Star Raider on the Atari, I'm going, I have to have that computer. Star Raider was the coolest game I'd ever seen on a computer, and I don't know if you've ever seen it. Part of the really cool effect in the game was when you were, it was a point of view space combat game, and when you were transporting from one quadrant to the other, you went through a hyperspace sequence that re- replicated the Star Wars stars zooming past you, which... Now I'm watching a video on it now. Yeah, it looks very impressive for the time. I mean, for, for about circa 1981 or so, that was just mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, what was your kind of setup then at university? Um, I know you used tape, and was that the kind of... We use tape a lot in the um, in Europe and in... UK like was it was mm-hmm. that the cheaper option back then and uh, how how much was it used in uh, in America oh uh, yeah well, no, we we were still using cassette tape for uh, a lot of the the early PCs back then so I think even when you if you got an Apple II the the default was to have a cassette tape recorder and so on back then when I got my Atari I think the disk drives were about eight hundred dollars which you know, I think that'd be well over a thousand today, and then uh, for that, and and the cassette tape player or recorder was only about one hundred and fifty, so that was all I could afford was the the cassette tape recorder. And so my first two games that I had published, I developed and uh, sent to Atari on cassette tape. Well, how did you learn programming, and what languages were you using? So, um, as I said back in high school, a friend lent me a basic program and I read through it and it sort of made sense. I had to have him explain what a for next loop was. And then I actually decided to major in computer science in college. So I learned all of the Pascal and C and some assembly language and so on. But my first two games were written in Atari basic and uh, barely squeezed it into uh, when I first got my, my Atari, I only had 16 K of memory in it. I had to later buy extra memory to expand it all the way up to 48K. So it was a 16K Atari 800 with a cassette tape and the basic cartridge. And that's where, when I created an uh, arcade-ish game called Rabots, where you were being chased around a fenced-in field by a bunch of uh, man-eating robot rabbits <laughs> with long, pointy teeth and a mean streak a mile wide. <laughs> and uh, that there was at the time uh, Atari themselves were doing a catalog of user written software so users could send in a program and if, if Atari deemed it to be worthy of selling and worthy of putting in the catalog they would take care of all the duplication distribution yada 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 and you get a 10% royalty on the deal and as a college kid First time I went down to the dorm mailroom and found a, an, a, an envelope with a check for like $300. I'm going, I'm going to be rich and famous. I'm now a published game designer. Because back then it would have been um, just people kind of producing baggies and like um, little plastic bags, producing them at home and stuff. Um, how did that catalog help then? The Atari Exchange program, was it like a valuable... Atari program exchange was it a valuable resource? I think it really was. Yeah, I think it really was a valuable thing for the early, early owners 
of those Atari computers because there weren't big publishers putting out a lot of stuff. So it was the hobbyists creating software for other hobbyists and so on. And actually, Chris Crawford, one of his first games was published through the APX catalog. So he basically got started that way with, I think the game was Eastern Front. It's got that philosophy of like a a modern app store as well, where you kind of create it and Mm -hmm. uh, there's a bit of royalties and then, you know, it's distributed, Mm -hmm. but uh, just, just really basically back then. Yeah. Yeah. And Atari also every quarter uh, gave out awards for the best software that they, they had submitted and that they were publishing in each of different categories. So my second game, which was called Snark Hunt, was uh, I think it took second place in the game in their game awards that that quarter, which uh, the award was a thousand dollars worth of Atari equipment, which is how I eventually finally got a real disk drive. Well, another really exciting company. I mean, you know, one that's still going today, obviously, Electronic Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you get to work with them, and um, what were you working on initially? Sure. Uh, well, when I graduated from college. Uh, I got a, a, a first a job offer from Broderbund and did a couple games for Broderbund. Then they did a layoff. Uh, I worked at Epics for about six months, worked on the Commodore 64 GI Joe game. And shortly after that game was published, they had a layoff. And uh, the timing was just about right that I, I applied to Electronic Arts at a time when they weren't hiring game programmers, but they did need somebody to do copy protection which I really knew very little about, but somehow I lucked into getting convincing them to hire me at the time. And so I spent my first year at Electronic Arts, and this was back in the time when they had maybe about 40 or 50 employees. So, uh, and I went through a really long interview process, uh, about three different days worth of interviews, one of which included a meeting, uh, sitting in on a meeting with some of their developers. And if you remember the early days of Electronic Arts, they first launched the company with this cool black and white rock star poster. Mm. Did you ever see the early EA rock yeah, star yeah, poster? Yeah, I was going to say they tried to appear like kind right. of rock stars and uh, yeah. uh, it, can, they can looked a like to make you cry, yeah. I remember, yeah. Yeah, the, it was basically a bunch of programmers who were really trying their hardest to look like cool rock stars. Not doing a great job, but doggone it, Trip tried his best. Uh, but I, I, so I, when I was interviewing for the job, I get to sit in on one of these meetings and I'm looking across the table and going, oh my God, that's, that's John Freeman. He was on the poster and there's, there's Ann Westfall and Paul Richie. Oh my God. I'm, you know, I was this fanboy. I was starstruck. And uh, after I actually got the job at Electronic Arts, it was, wasn't more than about two or three months before I'm going, oh God, it's John Freeman again. <laughs> He's going to drone on and on and on. So, so my, my, my fanboyishness wore off pretty quickly and discovered that they were real human beings. You mentioned about copy protection as yeah. well. And obviously, I mean, that was always kind of a challenge for software companies trying to keep one step ahead of the pirates. And, you know, just thinking back, I can't really think of any copy protection that mm. wasn't eventually defeated. But how did you kind of approach that then? I tried using the standard, uh, re- trying to be really, really clever, working with the disk duplication companies to come up with the signatures that can't be reproduced on a standard disk drive, yada, yada, yada approaches. And after doing that for about six months, I eventually came to realize that my job was uh, fighting an infinite number of hackers with an infinite amount of time. And no matter how clever I was, uh, by by sheer numbers, I was going to get outwitted in fairly short measure. So I put together a proposal 
for the executives and the whole team at Electronic Arts to basically say, let's stop doing copy protection, as in weird mm. signature stuff on the discs, and let's start putting stuff into our games that enhanced the experience of the game, put things in there like a full-color star map or a code wheel or a paragraph booklet. So these are things that you need to have in hand while playing the game to be successful at the game. And reproducing them was not a technical challenge. So the hackers couldn't feel like, oh, I'm so clever. I outwitted the guy doing the copy protection. It was more just a pain in the rear. Uh, oh, I got to pay to go make a color copy of this star map. And that's going to cost me several dollars back then to make color copies of anything. You had to go down to the local copy shop and color copiers were really expensive back then or have to disassemble the code wheel that came with the game. Uh, one of the first games we used that on was a game EA released called Starflight and Starflight, very good game in general, but the sales on Starflight were substantially higher than many of our other games at the time, simply because we had changed our approach to copy protection from being on disc copy protection to being in the package game enhancements that were necessary to play. So I attribute some of that to not just the fact that it was an awesome game, but the fact that there were fewer people actually pirating it. Why was, why was Mule such an important title and such a, a fun title? Uh, Mule is a game, you know, if you think about it, it came out in the early 80s, almost 40 years ago. Uh, I could still boot up my old Atari 800 and play it and have a great time today. It is just this wonderfully balanced blend of competition and cooperation. It's an economic simulation. Um, it is a game that is as well designed of a kind of multiplayer economics game as something like uh, the Settlers of Catan board game is in many respects. So I think it was just one of the first really good implementations of a strategy game that was not an incredibly over-complex war game, but it wasn't a an arcade game either. It was something that, that really appealed to those of us who like to think a little bit with our games. And uh, uh, it just really hit that sweet spot. And it was kind of multiplayer as well and uh, uh, turn-based, but... Uh... Yeah, it was multiplayer. I mean, you did have you did have computer opponents, so you could play it all by yourself. But it really was best to play when you could get two or three of your friends around. And it it leveraged the fact that the Atari 800 was one of the first computers out there, which actually had four separate joystick ports, so you could play with four different people simultaneously. You know, when I think of iconic microcomputers from the 80s, obviously the the Commodore 64, which I know actually held the title of the um, the best selling single model of computer just until like the Raspberry Pi overtook it about two or three years ago, I think. How important was that machine? And did you see like the computer scene kind of blow up with loads of new users coming in when the 64 landed? Yeah, I think the Commodore 64 really was the first one that became an affordable home computer. Up until then, Apple IIs, TRS-80s, uh, Ataris, they were really mostly appealing to the hobbyists mostly because they were still relatively expensive. They were not cheap enough to be considered toys. They were not cheap enough to buy one for your kids. And people were still buying their you know, Atari 2600 
video game cartridge things for their family living room. And here came a, a C64, which was priced not much more than the Atari video game cartridge machine. And it really did take off. As a developer, I hated it because Commodore tended to be very inconsistent with updating their chipset. And you would find when you were testing games on the Commodore 64 that for some reason the game worked perfectly on this C64 and would crash and burn for some un inexplicable reason on this other Commodore 64. And nobody had documented why this one was different from that one. So we had a lot of really frustrated developers. Um, in, in the early days of Electronic Arts, we used to have an annual developers conference where we brought all of the authors who were working on games for EA together for a few days. And one evening, I, I snuck a Commodore 64 and one of their disk drives out of our uh, computer lab and brought it over to the hotel where we had our conference and brought up a couple of baseball bats. <laughs> and we vented our frustration with that Commodore 64. It's kind of like if you ever saw the, the, the ending of Office Space with their copy machine. We just, just yeah. head at it. <laughs> Well, it didn't resemble much of a Commodore 64 after all. There were no two keys from the keyboard left stuck together. Well, you, you worked on G.I. Joe for the C64. And, uh, yes. That, that was a huge brand, actually. Um, was there a lot of oversight from Hasbro with that game? Um, Hasbro had very little, actually, to do with it. Um, the reason we ended up with that license was that Epix had recently hired a new CEO, Michael Katz, who came out of the, the toy business and didn't really understand computer games. So the first thing he did was do several toy licenses. He licensed Barbie, he licensed Hot Wheels, he licensed G.I. Joe. And even as we were developing G.I. Joe, in the model, they had they were just at that same point in time launching the cartoon series and launching relaunching the whole set of G.I. Joe toys. But Michael Katz, our president, was still thinking of G.I. Joe in the 1960s era with the 12-inch dolls and kept asking, which one of these guys on the screen is G.I. Joe? We had to keep explaining to him they're all part of a team called G.I. Joe, but I, I just don't think he ever quite got it. But uh, I, I had a friend who had uh, some bootleg anime tapes and was able to get the pilot movie that they had made before they launched the G.I. Joe cartoon. And we, we borrowed a lot from the images from that pilot movie that uh, we got off of a bootleg tape. And one of the nicest things about working on that was that Epix gave me, at the time I was, what, 23, 24, and they gave me a budget of a few hundred dollars to go down to Toys R Us and buy as many G.I. Joe toys as I felt like. I'm going, wow, somebody's giving me money to buy toys as part of my job. That's awesome. <laughs> well, one thing I always hear about that game is that there was no ending or, or no kind of objective right. or high scores. Like, uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was Michael Katz's idea to create what he called computer activity toys and when he said we're going to do computer activity toys i turned to the other designers and programmers around me and said what does he mean by that and he said well and they all said well basically we're just going to design a game we just don't give it an end goal so you just kept playing forever and you never quite felt like you won the game but you did feel like you won individual battles and you could keep going on and on playing with it which kind of a dumb idea in retrospect but that was what michael katz wanted was a computer activity toy well, no, G.I. Joe, looking at it, it's um, a, a very technically impressive game. I mean, you've got stuff like, you know, what we'd call today animated cutscenes in there, you know, lots of different locations as well. I mean, how did you kind of approach turning it into the game and what are you kind of most proud of? About well, you know what game? the animated cutscenes were for? It's 
because the Commodore disk drive took like two minutes to load up the next portion of the program. So we loaded up a really small piece of code to put up the cut screen and then animated a, a, a vehicle coming out of the GI Joe headquarters in a very minimal way just to cover the time that it's taking to load up all the rest of the game on there. A lot nicer than a black screen. Yeah, rather than a black screen and doing that. The thing that I was really proud of was, uh, and it's something that people didn't actually make much notice of because it felt so natural, was that in the game, and I was doing the, the part which was man-on-man, people shooting at each other combat, but you could walk around on a street scene and your character could walk all the way around a car or a phone booth or something like that. And it clipped correctly and hid the, the parts of, of your character that were supposed to be hidden behind the car and so on and so forth. And I was really proud of that, but nobody noticed it because it just worked the way it was supposed to work. So I think that's that's the case really for a lot of people who work in special effects is the, the best ones are the ones that people think is so natural. Well, what did you think of uh, the PC Junior that kind of arrived at that time? And uh, what, what do you think caused it to be kind of uh, not as popular as, as it could have been? Um, I think the PC Junior was too expensive still to be a home computer, and it was not serious enough of a, a work computer for anybody who wanted an IBM IBM to take it seriously. So it kind of fell into this chasm in between. You know, if I want something for my kids, the, the IBM name doesn't mean anything to my kids. But uh, I think the, the IBM PCs were more successful for, for the dads who wanted to have a serious computer to work on at home. And especially once people could come out with affordable PC clones, that's, that's when that market really took off, was that dad, dad could justify still you know, buying it to do spreadsheets and work at home, but still have something that would play games for the rest of the family, too. That infrared keyboard probably didn't help either. Yeah. And the chiclet keys. I don't know if you ever tried typing yeah. on one of those keyboards. Yeah, I've tried them, yeah. They, they just were awkward and no fun. Yeah. Do, do, do you think that kind of put developers off as well and people were just like, we're, we're not going to hit this system because it's not going to sell enough and, you know, there's others out there. Well, yeah. I, I think for the most part, the developers just in some ways even just resisted the idea of doing something for IBM because we all saw ourselves as, as counter-authoritarian re- rebels. So if you remember back in 1984, the original Apple Macintosh ads, yeah, the 1984 totally themed. Aimed at IBM, weren't they? Yeah. So we were siding with that. And at the time when uh, we probably should have started taking the IBMs more seriously, I was at Electronic Arts and we were going full tilt for the Amiga. We were all convinced, Trip more than anybody else, that the Amiga was going to be the home computer going forward. It had the most amazing graphics. It had the most amazing audio support. It had a multitasking operating system. It had a great chip in it, chipset in it. And it was everything we could dream a home computer should be, except for the price tag. And I mean, you know, if, if the world was fair, yeah. it probably would have been the dominant computer platform. I mean, you know, Deluxe Paint that obviously EA put out, you know, I, I used to live on that program as a kid, just making, when the animated version came out, number three, I remember, you know, just sitting at home making cartoons on it and stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, Electronic Arts were really behind the Amiga as well. I mean, was there a really big push to kind of support that platform there then? 
Oh, absolutely. Within EA, we, we were putting more effort and, and more uh, budget into developing for the Amiga and kind of put everything else on a back burner, uh, even though you know, the majority of our actual sales were still on 8-bit computers, even though we were making our bread and butter money off of Commodore 64 games and Apple II games and Atari games. We, we put our best developers and our best team and our, our best budgets onto doing Amiga games. And we also ticked off all of the Atari ST owners at the same time because they they thought their computer was every bit as good as the Amiga. And uh, one there's one Atari ST user who single-handedly killed any support that Electronic Arts had for the Atari ST. We were, at the time that we were developing for the Amiga, testing the Atari ST waters to see if games would sell there, and they weren't really selling that well. And Trip Hawkins himself was working late one evening when the phone rings, and he just, I'm not sure of pure whim, he picked it up to answer it instead of letting it go to the uh, answering machine. And it was a, an Atari ST user calling to complain about how come you guys aren't putting out more games for the Atari ST. And Trip put on his best customer service voice and said, well, I'm surprised you quite ready to put out this game, this game, this game, and this game, and two more just this week. And the guy said, well, yeah, I've already got all of those. And Trip said, well, that's surprising. How did, how did you get them all already? He said, well, I pirated them. So the next day, oh, no. an email from Trip goes out to the entire company retelling that story and says, we are halting all development of all Atari ST games. Period. The wow. end. So any, any people listening to this that wondered why um, yep. the Atari ST wasn't supported anymore, that, that guy was to blame. Yes. I mean, we always suspected there was a piracy problem, but we tried to pretend that maybe we could still sell some. And this, you just don't, don't tick off trip. How much did porting to all the different kind of systems affect the market and, and affect how EA worked? Because there was so much choice out back then. Oh, I mean, it just drove us all nuts and uh, trying to, to do all those conversions. And I was um, at EA, we, we were trying to support all of those 8-bit computers, trying to create really groundbreaking things for computers like the Amiga. Uh, we were a little bit behind the curve on supporting the IBM PC clones at the time. But also we were trying to support the Macintosh. We were trying to support the Apple II GS and so on. And so I think probably at least half of our development money went to not creating new titles, but just converting all of the, the existing titles to different platforms. And you know, that, that that was a colossal amount of friction to try to be able to reach your, your target audience by having to redo that for all of these different ones. Um, late a few years after EA I went to work for um, Dynamics, which was owned by Sierra at the time. And we did some animated adventure games. We did some combat simulators like A-10 Tank Killer and so on and so forth. And I had an entire department of programmers and developers and artists doing nothing but ports, nothing but conversions. So uh, the originals were then being created on for the PC clones, but then I got to turn around and put it on every other platform that we could. And at the same time, then also do the foreign language translations for Spanish and French and German and so on and so forth. So just the number of different 
versions of any game just multiplied out to a painfully headache-inducing number. Well, in the late 80s, Electronic Arts published a very ambitious game for the Commodore 64 um, that also came out on the PC the following year. That was um, Dan Bunton's Modem Wars. Oh, yeah. Um, how did that go for EA then? What was kind of the, the story there? Um, well, th- that game was one where it took practically equal amounts of effort between Dan Bunton, who was the game developer, and uh, we had a dedicated programmer to just work on how do we make um, multiplayer modem communication work consistently and effectively so that the game wouldn't crash or drop or get out of sync or so on and so forth uh, at the time between two Commodore 64s. And it was one of those cases where I think we were just painfully slightly ahead of our time. Uh, I don't think the 8-bit machines were really up to the real ability to do multiplayer gaming on a very successful and satisfying basis. But Bodom Wars was a really nice little war game. It was fun to play, but it just didn't sell very well because I just don't think that the, the user base was there yet for Commodore 64s with enough people with modems to want to play games on it yet. But Dan Bunton was uh, very, very passionate about seeing multiplayer gaming being the future of our industry. Dan used to wear T-shirts that said, stop playing with yourself. <laughs> well, he was right, wasn't he? Yeah, he yep. got it right. Yep. I, and, and, and just on, as a quick aside on that, you know, one of the people I had the greatest, greatest amount of respect for in the game industry uh, was Dan when I knew him as Dan, and even more so when uh, Dan transitioned to becoming Dan Danielle, Danny Barry mm-hmm. Bunton. And seeing a friend that I originally knew as kind of a shy, quiet, thoughtful, introverted programmer become so completely extroverted, so completely outspoken, so, oh, it's so wonderful to see you. Let's sit down and talk about stuff. Personality just emerged from Dan's transition to, to Danny. And it was it broke my heart when uh, Danny died of cancer just a, a little bit over a year later. What what was it like in those early like online multiplayer kind of days? Like, w- were you guys uh, frequenting BBSs in the office at all? Um, when I started at EA in charge of the copy protection, one of the things I did was I posed on a lot of the pirate BBSs just to kind of get a sense of who was out there, how are they cracking our code, and so on and so forth. And uh, every once in a while, when I found a pirate BBS that was being really egregious uh i'd sick our lawyers on them and they would send out a little cease and desist letter which was usually enough to scare them into stopping their operations for at least a little while but yeah uh i used to be on CompuServe, used to be on genie quite a bit uh back then one of the other things totally unrelated to the game business but it was a a, a lot of fun back in the mid 90s being on genie when there was a TV series called Babylon 5 and you could log on to the Genie BBS section for Babylon 5 every day and get updates and comments and posts from the series creator J, uh, J. Michael Straczynski. So well before there was a World Wide Web that everybody was using. Well tell us how you got involved with um, Origin Systems then. What was the story there? I left Electronic Arts in the late 80s. Uh, this was right around the same time that we were starting up the computer game developers conference 
Uh, I had tried my hand at running my own separate independent game development studio and uh, got a couple of ports done for a couple of different clients. But in a span of a couple months, I had three major projects fall out from under me from three different companies going bankrupt or just pulling the plug on them. So at the time that I decided to close up shop on my company in California, we were about to sign a contract to do, uh, I think it was a, an Ultima conversion of some sort for, for origin systems. And uh, they said, well, if you're not going to be able to work on this project in running your own company, we're going to have an opening for a producer. You want to come down and interview to uh, work for us as a producer. And I'd never envisioned myself as a Texan. I don't wear cowboy boots. I don't wear ha cowboy hats. I don't didn't want to live around oil wells and tumbleweeds and all that stuff. I had this very, very uh, Hollywood image of what Texas was all about. But they flew me down to Austin and there were no cactuses, there was no tumbleweed, there were no oil wells, there were no cattle. Uh, it was a really cool overgrown college town with lots and lots of bookstores. And I, I fell in love with Austin and uh, came down to work with Richard Garriott and Chris Roberts right at the time that they were about to ship Ultima 6 on the PC and Chris was working on the first Wing Commander. And my first project was to take the game engine that we created for Ultima 6 and repurpose it to a different genre. We had invested so much money in the Ultima 6 engine that we realized we were going to have to spread out the investment in technology across several different games. So we decided to try doing these what we called Worlds of Ultima games, where we took the basic Ultima game engine, but rather than being in a swords and sorcery world of Britannia, we did a game set in a sort of Edgar Rice Burroughs lost world of dinosaurs and cavemen and uh, primitive societies. And then we did another game called Martian Dreams, which was a steampunk-driven trip to Mars. I got to work on Savage Empire. Warren Spector, who was the other producer at the time, got to work on Martian Dreams, and ironically... Uh, those two ideas were ones we had each pitched, but we had each pitched the other person's idea. Uh, I wanted to do the steampunk thing, and he wanted to do the, the Lost World dinosaur theme, but timing worked out that we ended up doing the, the other person's concept. Uh, for me, Savage Empire was one of the absolute best, best experiences as a producer because I had an amazing team. Uh, I had a really great writer that I got to contract with. His name was Aaron Alston. And he had done many, many, many great paper game, role-playing game products, uh, most notably for the Champions superhero role-playing game. And he was a delight to get to work with. And it was just, I, I still have uh, to this day a, a photo of our whole team posed in safari gear, uh, literally in our offices, but it looked like an outdoor waterfalls and jungle theme ultima set the kind of foundation for for, for modern rpgs uh, what was it like working on that series and what kind of innovations did you see and what, what ideas did you have around the ultima series well the ultima series like some of the other rpgs of the day like wizardry and so on were all set in this kind of generic dungeons and dragons sword and sorcery world 
So we were one of the first ones to say, can we do a satisfying role-playing game, but in a completely new and completely different genre? Uh, in this case, the, the Edgar Rice Burroughs Lost Worlds kind of, uh, of setting or the steampunk world of Martian Dreams. So we repurposed a lot of the technology, gave it a different theme, but still connected it to the, the Ultima worlds through some of the, the moonstones and the, the, mystique uh, that was built around Britannia in doing so. Uh, but we did also have to tweak the engine a little bit because when we're doing a game with dinosaurs, we had to be able to uh, animate creatures that were much larger on screen than we ever had to do for Ultima. So that was probably the biggest technical challenge uh, for us with Savage Empire. Well, we've had Chris Crawford on the show before. Um and obviously, I know you were involved in setting up GDC with him as well. Mm-hmm. How important was it to get that up and running? And how did your involvement start sure. with that? Uh, so GDC, actually back then, CGDC, Computer Game Developers Conference, uh, because we, we felt we needed to make a distinction between board games. We, we had great respect for the board game industry and also a slight distinction from video games. There was a bigger chasm between the Nintendo Sega video game world and our world of of PC gaming. But anyway, it originally began, and Chris Crawford will take credit for the first GDC, which he says was the gathering of two dozen people at his house in San Jose. And I was at that one, and uh, the rest of the committee that started the first real conference conference formed out of that. So there were half a dozen of us who at the end of the day at Chris's house said, wow, we ought to really put on a real conference and try to get a whole like schedule of different workshops and sessions and speakers and so on and so forth and maybe do awards and and so on. So six of us from that day out of the two dozen or so that showed up at Chris's house uh, all volunteered to be on a committee to put on the first uh, computer game developers conferences. And we found a hotel, the Holiday Inn Milpitas, and I ended up volunteering to be the person recruiting all of our speakers who were going to be doing all of our tracks of workshops and programs and so on. Uh, so I cannot count the number of times I had to tell a prospective speaker, no, no, really, trust me, the, the, the Holiday Inn Milpitas is a much, much nicer hotel than the name sounds. But it was, it was I think we had maybe 150 or so people come out for that first game developers conference in 88 I think it was we ha- we gave out an award we gave an award to Dan Bunton as you know the greatest game designer and uh, it was it was a really to me it was really really important that we try to find a good way to build a sense of community among game developers that most mm-hmm. of us were working still in solitude most game developers working out of their home out of the garage there there weren't a whole lot of game development teams and so on so it was still a very small cottage industry at the time and very isolated and this this gave all the developers a chance to hang out with each other and uh, one of the interesting things that happened was we had asked the hotel this is about the time that uh, a company was putting out what was called jolt cola which was a cola that had like three times the caffeine of normal sodas. Yeah, the programmer's soda of choice, I remember. Exactly. And we had asked the hotel to get a supply of Jolt 
just kind of as a, as a nicety, and then they misunderstood our request, and that was the only soda that they had available for us. So do you know what a, a convention of game developers after three days of drinking nothing but jolt is like? <laughs> Heavily wired. Bouncing off the walls, I yeah, imagine. Yeah, but there were several good late-night poker games and, and lots of other fun stuff going on. Well, I, I, I watched a video, and uh, in it you mentioned um, that, that Sid Meier uh, was, was saying to you, uh, you know, he had several ways in which he nearly destroyed the civilization right. game. <laughs> yeah, this was this was a few years later in the in the early nineties, um, and I was no longer running the Game Developers Conference. But Sid was asked to do a, a presentation, a workshop for one of the uh, annual Game Developers Conferences, and he did a, a rehearsal run of it for those of us who were working with him. I was working at Microprose at the time in the early nineties. And so he gave it a, a dry run, a rehearsal run of his presentation for us there. And it it solidified that, that Sid is just genius. Sid is absolutely genius. And I, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to read his biography yet, but I and- highly, highly recommend his biography. It's a, it's a great book. But Sid, his basic premise for his talk was the 10 ways I almost destroyed civilization. And what it really came down to were here are the decisions of things I was thinking about putting in the game. Here's what I ultimately decided would be the impact on the game itself. And that's ultimately here's why I took it out of the game and kept it out of the game. Uh, something like I think one of the one of the things he, he pondered was nuclear weapons. And he basically came to the realization that they would, were, were such an overpowering uh, weapon to be used that there was no good way of counterbalancing it in the game. And so he just basically dropped it out of the the game civilization when he first developed it. Well, speaking of um, other geniuses that you've, uh, you've worked with and that, you know, obviously Will Wright. I mean, uh, when did you first meet Will and what did you think of his game design time when he first met? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I consider myself to be uh, for anybody who's a comic book geek. um, Rick Jones, Rick Jones was the sidekick to every great superhero uh, back in, in in the day. And I, I can't really take much credit for any brilliant game that I did, but I, I got a chance to work with many, many brilliant game designers like Sid Meier, like Dan Bunton, like Richard Garriott, like Chris Roberts, and so on. Um, Will, sweet, very nice, very affable guy. Uh, he was He and his partner were just launching Maxis at the time, and they had two games that were in development, one of which was a wireframe flight simulation game and the other was this game where you are managing a city and I got a chance to sit down and play test with both of those and I said well I think this this you know airplane combat game this jet combat game should probably do pretty well there's always a market for that I love this sim city thing you're doing but I really have a, a tough time imagining how you're going to market it and get people to want to play a game where you have to be a city manager. I, I, I don't see the market appeal to that. And I am really, really, really glad that I was proven wrong by the market in that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause it really was, uh, I, I, I stayed up way too late many nights playing SimCity. It was but, an absolutely amazing game, SimCity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, it, and it started that whole kind of genre. Yeah, absolutely. 
and then you had Sim Earth and Sim Ant, and eventually The Sims, which I credit I credit Will Wright with getting a bunch of guys in their twenties to play Barbie with The Sims. <laughs> That's basically what it is: is Barbie Dreamhouse. Well, well, you mentioned earlier uh, Wing Commander, and um, with, with Wing Commander, uh, it was it was a point when Sound Blaster cards came out, and yeah, uh, there was a huge change in the industry. How how important was it to get those Sound Blasters out there, and uh, you know, uh, people having uh, such a change in music? Well, I, I I think it really dramatically changed the visceral experience of playing a game. Because up until then, you really were just, you were seeing things, but all you were ever hearing were, were little weak beeps and boops in there. And suddenly when you can have a game that has a dramatic soundtrack, and I credit George Sanger and Dave Govett with doing some amazing work on the, the Wing Commander soundtrack and taking advantage of those sound cards to the degree they did. Um, I learned so much about what makes or how important uh, music in a soundtrack is to a dramatic experience. Uh, George gave a talk at one of the Game Developers Conferences where he took the script from Return of the Jedi, the scene where where Darth Vader is about to die and he asks Luke, take off my mask, I want to see you with my own eyes, and reads the script out loud and the dialogue is terrible. It is just painful dialogue to hear in and of itself. And then he plays the scene as it is in the movie, and with the music in the background, it just changes the whole thing from cringeworthy dialogue to tear break, tear inducing drama. That just, mm. and it was all, all, you know, I think most most of the credit for that just goes to the way that they they played the the soundtrack to bring everybody to tears. And so George Sanger just pioneered so much of that those early soundtracks and so much of of how do you use audio well in games and he did a very kind of gdc thing as well which was his like he did these sound barbecues where he'd uh, get all the sound devs together and kind of try and oh, get yeah. everybody on the same standard yeah if you ever saw i guess you may have heard project barbecue of some of the retreats that he held i helped facilitate a couple of those um where he just gathered all the best minds in computer audio together for a couple of days of pure pure brainstorming and where do we want to go with the industry? And they were, they were great experiences. I couldn't understand half of what they were talking about because my musical knowledge is nearly nil. I can't read sheet music at all or anything, but just hanging out with those guys. He, he had, um, you remember Thomas Dolby? Yeah. Of She Blinded Me With Science. He, he came out and was in one of those project barbecues and I'm totally fanboy starstruck at meeting Thomas Dolby and, I was listening to Thomas Dolby talk about when he got to meet Roger Daltrey and how starstruck he was. And I'm going, wow. So <laughs> even big big celebrities have their fanboy moments with bigger celebrities. Well, obviously, I mean, you mentioned the Sand Blaster, but another big innovation that kind of went hand in hand with that around the same time was the CD-ROM drive coming along. And um, obviously, Wing Commander 2, CD-ROM edition. Um, what were the changes there? And was it good to work on a title that, you know, had all this sudden expansion of space that you could put onto a CD-ROM? It must have felt limitless almost at the time. Yeah, it, it really took us a while to figure out what to do with all that space. And I think one of the things we were most excited by, which turned out to be a really stupid idea was uh, some of us kind of got caught up with the idea of, oh, we can put whole movie sequences into the middle of our games. 
And so, yeah, Wing Command, the Wing Commander series was one of the first ones to do that. And they hired Mark Hamill and, and uh, all these other wonderful actors to put in these movie sequences in the middle of the game. And then we were all kind of shocked and horrified to see what our actual players did, which was, if it's not the game, I want to skip past all the sequences until I can get back to being in charge and being in control. So our audience really had very little desire to just sit back and watch scenes with Mark Hamill in them, even though we'd spent millions and millions of dollars to get it in there. Um, They just wanted to get back to playing the game. And I don't think you were unique in that respect. So many companies did that, you know, because full motion video, the first time you see it, yeah, it was impressive. But then after that, you know, it's not the reason that people bought the games. Right. No, absolutely not. Uh, But it's it's very typical of learning what the strengths are of a new medium and, and the strengths of computer games are interactivity. It's not in replicating what you can just watch on a DVD or in a movie theater. Uh, you know, the, the name of it is, is it's all about it, the interactivity and you being in control. And so there's not much patience for just wanting to sit and watch uh, a passive movie sequence in doing so. Well, your latest title is Master of Orion. And um, do, do, do you think it's important to still kind of push? And is it harder to push original concepts in gaming? I think the industry as a whole... Uh, has gotten a little bit more gun-shy and a little bit less creative as budgets go up higher and higher. It's it's very much similar to, you know, Hollywood blockbusters. You, you don't see a whole lot of big-budget Hollywood blockbusters that are doing anything really creatively risk-taking. They've learned what formula sells and want to replicate it as, in as many different variations as they can. Uh, so... I really enjoyed back in the early 90s getting to work on Master of Orion. It was, uh, I think it really hit that sweet spot between a really good, deep, strategic game, uh, but still being very accessible and easy to learn and easy to play. And as, as Alan Emmerich coined the term uh, 4X, he was the one that, that created the term 4X games for games where you uh, explore the galaxy, expand your empire, exploit your planet's resources and exterminate your opponents. So uh, I grant, I give a lot of credit to Steve Barcia as the designer for finding the best way to balance out the depth and complexity with still being simple, learn and play. And then nearly 20 years later, somebody acquires the rights uh, to remake master of Orion and they got the old band together, or at least as much of the band as they could find. Uh, they get, they found me, they found Jeff D who, uh, I had hired to do most of the artwork for the original master of Orion. And they found Dave Govett who had done the music for the original master of Orion to compose new music for the, the remake that came out about four or five years ago. And then they got Alan Emmerich, as well, who had not really worked on the original game per se, but had done the strategy guide and had sort of been an informal consultant on that. So we got to be a panel of advisors, partially just to help them recognize and understand what what made Master of Orion true, but I think also just for the the marketing credibility to be able to say that, yes, we, we got the guys who helped build the original Master of Orion to be involved in the production of the new one. Uh, the new one, I think, was a really, really good 
implementation of the game. I don't think it quite captured the magic of the original one, but it did have something which I just completely, completely geeked out over. And that is that when they remade it uh, four or five years ago, they were able to hire voice actors, which we could have never dreamed of back in the early 90s, but they got voice actors. And so the first time that I got to play, play test a beta copy of the game with the voice tracks installed, and we had Michael Dorn, who played Worf in Star Trek. We had John Delancey, who was Q. We had Mark Hamill. We had Alan Tudyk from Firefly. We had this just absolutely amazing voice cast of geek actors. And the first time I'm playing a game that I, you know I get to take credit in working on and helping design, and I get to hear Mark Hamill's voice in a game I'm working on. I'm just going, this is so cool. This is so awesome. Yeah, that is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, I didn't get to be there in the studio when they were recording. Well, it's available on Steam, and you can also get the Master of Orion Collector's Edition, which yeah. uh, has all three games in it, which is yeah. absolutely amazing. And, you know, in, in, in prepping to be a consultant on the new version, I had to break out, of course, my old copy and boot it back up and play it again a few times. And it's one of the few games that I worked on in my whole career that I could still play after it had shipped and go, this is still a fun game. Because usually by the time as a producer, if you're working on the game for months and months and months, you're so sick to death of it by the time it ships that you never want to see it again. Well, Jeff, what are you up to these days? Are you still involved in the games industry and anything like coming up from you? Um, In many ways, I am kind of like a ex-smoker or a reformed alcoholic that when I got out of the game industry, I, I went cold turkey and haven't really played anything much more complicated than Words with Friends on any kind of PC in years. I'm working now. Uh, I've been working for Austin Community College for the last five years in our faculty development team and helping. Uh, we, we are one of the largest community colleges in the country, and we have over 1,500 faculty, and I've been helping them uh, develop more effective and engaging teaching techniques, including applying gamification to the classroom. So I've been able to uh, take some of what I learned as a game designer and apply it to actually learning useful skills in many respects. But uh, I do still have shelves and shelves of board games, and I am eager for the pandemic to be gone enough that I can get back together around a table with friends and get back to playing um Catan, get back to playing uh, Ticket to Ride, get back to playing uh, any of the number of the board games, Small World, uh, and Eclipse, and so on and so forth, and Cosmic Encounter. So, so I'm an old school board gamer, and I still love doing that. But I, I can't play a computer game or a video game anymore without the the designer at the back of my head going, "Well, that was a stupid idea. Why did they do it that way?" Once the designer, always the designer. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's hard to enjoy uh, a computer game or a video game anymore. And I never had the, had the reflexes to be really good at most of the action games. Yeah, and I find uh, if you're anything like me, that the older you get, the slower your, re- your reflexes go as well. I'm, I'm nowhere near as good as games they used to yep, be. Yeah, and so you know, get, getting a call to talk about games I worked on 40 years ago is is a lot of fun and a lot of nostalgia, but it still reminds me that, hey, I'm, I'm like 60 now. Ah. Uh, getting old just, you know, feel like those 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 old guys statler and Wald, waldorf in the balcony the muppet show 
Well, Jeff, it has been incredible to hear your stories. Um, obviously, you know, just some amazing companies that you work for and, you know, massive franchises that live on to this day. So we really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and talking to us this week. My pleasure. And I hope that you got enough that you can probably edit it down to at least 20, 30 minutes worth of stuff that sounds <laughs> interesting and intelligent out of all this. 